0: Join me this morning as we read from God's Word, um, Psalm 13. Um, we also have Bibles at the back. If you uh, would like to have a printed one, please feel free to grab one on your way in. Um, we have them back there for your for your use. Um, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long? Will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is God's holy word.
1: So how do you pray How do you pray when you cannot sense God's presence? How do you you pray when you cannot perceive what God is doing in your life? When he hasn't, at least according to you, hasn't answered you. How did Bill Withers put it in 1971? He he sang the words, ain't no sunshine when she's gone. It's not warm when she's away. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. And she's always gone too long anytime she goes away. The Psalms often sing about this. It's kind of like a spiritual uh, separation anxiety. Between the person praying and singing these prayers. In this case, David in Psalm 13 and God. Uh, there's, There's almost an anxiousness. A worry that comes after you feel as though God is not responding. As though God is not answering you so as you look at David speaking in Psalm 13, you see him say four times, "How long?" You see those words four times: "How long? How long? How long? How long?" Have you ever felt that God wasn't answering you? Have you ever felt like you you couldn't get relief with a particular ailment or conflict? Have, have you ever felt that for a period of your life, it just seemed that opportunity after opportunity or door after door just closed in front of you? Door closed, door closed, opportunity goes by you. Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Statistics say that even for confessing Christians who are mature in their Christian walk, it is still hard for people to actually believe that God loves them. Have you ever felt abandoned by him? How do you pray when you can't sense the presence of God in your life? Real prayer and we're looking at the Psalms this summer. So they are all sung composed prayers. Real prayer and and prayer that is prayed in faith. It remembers that God's silence isn't always as it sounds. What we're going to see in Psalm 13 is that David understood, while he was in a dark place, uh, that as deep as the silence of God seems to be in your life, his grace is even deeper than that. God's love runs deeper than his silence. So as we look at Psalm 13, and it's a short psalm, easy to follow, I want to talk to you about three things. I want to mention the cry of faith that we see in this psalm. And then I want to talk about the request of faith. And then finally, I want to talk about the decision of faith. So you see a progression of thought here in David's prayer. The cry of his heart that comes out of faith, the request he makes to God that comes from his faith. And then finally, the decision that his faith causes him to make. First of all, let's look at the cry of faith. It is okay to say to God, where are you? Real prayer. Have you noticed how raw and and transparent the Psalms are? This is difficult stuff that the psalmists are wrestling with. But real prayer calls to God and, and just asks him, Where have you been? Where have you been? What are you doing? Do you see what I'm going through? And he says in the first two verses, How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will I how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? We don't know the biographical circumstances surrounding Psalm 13. We don't know what was going on in David's life for this psalm, but we know, if you've read about David's life in the Old Testament, you know he was a man accustomed to waiting. Ed was talking earlier about waiting and patience. David understood waiting. As a young man, he was a shepherd boy. He did a lot of waiting. Um, He was a military man. He was a political man after. He He understood waiting. He was running for his life, hiding in caves for a long time while Saul was after him. He understood waiting in dark places. And uh, later in his life, his own son betrayed him. David understood waiting. But at this point, because of a lack of divine action, he says that he's left to, what are the words? Take counsel in my soul does that mean that he's his own therapist? Well, uh, not necessarily. It, it means that he's struggling and wrestling with his own troubled thoughts. He can't see God working. He doesn't know what God is up to. He feels like there's no movement in his life, that there's no relief. And, and so he is just struggling with inner thoughts, with, with tempting thoughts. You know, do, is God who he said he is? You, when you have not gotten an answer and when your life just seems like <laughs> stuck in a place... Do you ever just start questioning what you believe? You start arguing with yourself? Well, here is David wrestling with his own troubled thoughts. And to make matters worse, he tells God, "My enemies are gloating. The people who want to do me harm, the people who are against me in the world, in my life, in the community, they're gloating. They want to see me fall. They're licking their lips." So David longs for God to speak, and he wants God to act. And he's basically saying in the first two verses, God, say anything. Do anything. Ain't no sunshine when you're gone. He's, He's in the dark here. You know this. If you've struggled, if you've suffered, you know that sometimes the waiting is worse than the suffering, isn't it? Sometimes you're you're enduring something and, and you think you just need to sprint for a month. I can just sprint for a month. We'll get through this. And then you discover you're, you're, you're running a marathon and you've expended all your energy and you've got to go for another year. You know, whatever, whatever was going on, you thought it would be over in a few weeks. It, it's boiled into a bigger situation. And now this stress, this loss, this grief, this conflict... Uh, This ailment is a marathon and you've expended all your energy and resources and brain power and you've got to keep going. And sometimes the waiting and the endurance is worse than what you're actually suffering through. The Psalms again, okay, the Psalms invite us to vocalize our grief, our anxiety and our confusion and even your despair. It is okay to say to God, I have lost it. I don't know what's going on and I don't know what you're doing. This isn't the most important thing to consider today, but if we're going to go further, we have to start here. The Psalms invite you to be real with your creator and tell him, I'm confused, I'm scared, I'm angry. I'm even angry with you. The Psalms allow you to express the deepest despair. Now this isn't a disrespectful quarreling with God like the Israelites in Exodus 17 where they quarreled, you know, where they grumbled out of bitterness and a lack of faith. This isn't that. It's a desperate longing. It's not forget you God, it's I need you. Where where are you? And this is evident in the following verses. David moves from a cry you know, just a guttural cry of faith, reaching out to God in his darkness, he moves to a request now. Not only is it okay to, act, to tell God, where are you? It's also okay to say to God, help. I, I don't know what else to say. Help. Real prayer pleads for deliverance, doesn't it? some of us, it's hard to pray. It's, it's hard to formulate words, uh, especially in public or in front of other people. Uh, so, some people say, I'm not eloquent. I don't like to pray in front of other people. But there have been times in your life where the truest things that have ever come out of your mouth have been directed to God in your desperation or in mo- dark moments of your soul. Yeah, and it's okay in those moments to just say, God, I, <laughs> I need help. You come to God and, and you ask him to deliver you or someone else. You ask him to heal somebody or maybe yourself. You ask God in desperation for justice, for justice in the world or in your community. Or You ask God to vindicate you or to vindicate somebody. This is good. This is good. This is an expression of faith. Look at David in, in verse 3. He says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He's saying two things to God here. He's asking him for two things. First, pay attention to me. Look, heads up, here I am, here I am, stuck in a dark valley. I'm in a ditch, I'm in a ravine, don't know how to get out of here, waters are rising. I need something here. Throw me a lifeline. That's the first. He said, "God, would you pay attention to me?" The second thing he says, though, is, "This is curious. This is interesting." Light up my eyes. Some translations say, "Enlighten my eyes." Commentators say, in the very simplest sense of of the of the of the language, uh, it sounds like David is asking that God would just brighten up his eyes. You know, cheer me up, Lord. Change my countenance so so that I don't I don't. I don't go into such a deep despair that I can't come out of it. Because he talks about sleeping the sleep of death. It's a real thing, physiologically, mentally. He's saying, spare me from that, Lord. Brighten up my eyes, cheer me up. And I think on the surface that's fair to assume that. But all commentators can't help themselves by saying, is something deeper going on here in David's request? I actually think there is. I think what David is really getting at here when he says, light up my eyes. I think what David is trying to do is get a different perspective. I think he wants God to help him see things differently. Because here's the thing. How are you going to cheer up in a difficult situation? In the darkness, how, how can you have hope? How, your perspective needs to change. You've ever had those jobs that you just wanted to quit, but you couldn't because you needed to make money, like just the worst job, the job from hell. We've all had one or two of them in our lives, and you're in the middle of the day, and you're just, oh, oh, oh I, I don't know how to endure this. This is These people or this, this work, I, I've had enough of this, oh. and, and what changes your perspective? Well, you realize you get to go home at the end of the day. <laughs> So just just a slight change in, in your vantage point may give you just enough encouragement, may lift your countenance just enough to get through and endure the end of the day. And I get the sense that David is asking for a change of perspective. Enlighten my eyes, Lord. The preacher, Charles Spurgeon, put it this way. This is how he applied David's request. He said, let the eye of my faith be clear. That I may see my God in the dark. Let my eye of watchfulness be wide open, lest I be entrapped. And let the eye of my understanding be illuminated to see the right way. And this is interesting because the Apostle Paul said almost the same thing when he wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesus chapter 1, Paul is telling the Ephesian church, I'm praying for you. I remember you when I pray. And I pray all these wonderful things that you would know how much God loves you and, and the power of God at work in you. And in the middle of that prayer, he says to them, I'm praying that, you, that, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul knew that what believers need. What you really need. For a, a life of honest prayer. Even in your darkness. Right? For, for, for you to be able to stay sane. And have a brighter countenance. Even in the dark moments of your life. What you need is the right perspective. You need to see more than what is on the ground. And you need to understand more than what people are telling you. Light up my eyes. You've asked God for many things. I, I think of all the things that you've asked God for. Have you ever asked God to adjust your perspective? We make we make the mistake of drawing conclusions and <laughs> Of of making assumptions based on sight and feeling. We make the mistake of determining what is true and what God is or is not up to based on what our senses are telling us and what our feelings are telling us. Well, God gave us our senses and God gave us our feelings. They're good things, but they're not enough, not even close. Feelings draw data from our senses, right? We look, we see, we touch. We look at what's going on around us or what's not going around, on around us, and our feelings are influence, and then we follow our feelings. And these is what, this is what our senses tell us. I've got no money. I've got no job, or I've got the wrong job. Or I'm in the wrong relationship. Or I have no relationship. I'm in conflict. I'm lonely. I'm desperate. I'm confused. I'm angry. Because I'm missing such and such. Or because I don't have such and such. Or because I haven't got an answer. And I want to talk about the secular conclusion to God's apparent silence. And the moralistic conclusion to God's apparent silence. The secular mindset, maybe you think this way. Um, the secular mindset is, is this. This is the conclusion to God's silence. Huh. I am alone. I really am alone. I don't have anyone to trust in. And, and so if, if you're thinking that way, wow, I really am alone. Not only has God deserted me, but there is no God. Or if, even if functionally you live that way. Well, then you, you've got to, you may have two, one of two responses. The first response is you've got to concoct a reason to get out of bed in the morning, don't you? you you've got you've to invent a reason to live. You've got to get behind a cause or an idea or put an unhealthy amount of expectations on a person in order to move forward day by day. Because you think, well, I am alone in the universe, or you just give in to despair, you just give up logically, those are the two common sense conclusions to living as if there is no God: despair or inventing a reason to live and to work and to strive. What about the moralistic mindset, the kind of religious the religious churchgoer mindset? Are you tempted to conclude that your silence means that god is punishing you not that he doesn't exist or that he's gone but that he's punishing you that he's playing hard to get but he's giving you the silent treatment because of something you've done now you start wondering well what have i done what have i said what's going wrong what am i doing enough of what am i doing too much of because he's silent so obviously he's upset with me so what do you do now? Two responses. Either you strive harder and harder, you work harder. You're nicer, some of the nicest people in the world are striving hard because they don't want God to be silent in their lives. And so you try and you try and you strive but in vain. Or you do the same thing that the secular people do and the skeptics do, you also give up and you fall into despair. Because you just can't figure out what God wants from you. And you're tired and discouraged from trying and trying and trying and still not getting the answers that you want or that you think you're entitled to. But here's the thing. Whether you interpret the God's alleged silence in a secular way or in a moralistic way, both conclusions are bad. <laughs> uh, because you're interpreting your sight and your feelings with bad theology. That's why as a church we stress checking out the book table. Look at, what, look at the resources we pray about and labor over and put out there for you. To help you answer these questions that you have in those moments of silence and darkness. This is why we stress the importance of being in a community group. Or or being in a discipleship relationship with somebody else that you trust where you can grow in your faith together. That's why we offer these things. And I keep bringing them up uh, because we need the word of God and the people of God to get the right perspective. Lest we interpret what we see going on in the world and interpret our feelings with the conclusion of God God is dead. Or God is angry with us. For example. The sun. Okay. Just because the sun. Is obscured by the clouds. Doesn't mean it ceases to exist. Right. You know it's there. How much greater is our creator. Who remains on his throne. Who remains holding the universe together. By the power of his word. And his infinite love. Although your, your capacity for, for rational thinking um, it, it does not perceive what he's doing in the world and in your life. His ways may not be apparent to you at a given moment. But it does not mean that he, d- that he does not exist or that he doesn't love you. Consider a flower, which Charles Spurgeon said as he was meditating on Psalm 13. Consider a flower. A flower can't endure constant sunlight. But even the darkness and the rain are vital part, elements to its growth. Consider the Apostle Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16, which we only looked at a few months ago. When they're in prison, right, on that dark night, they're in prison and and they're singing songs to God in the cell. Consider when when Paul was under house arrest for at least two years in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier for his every day, all day long. And he writes a letter to the Philippians and he says to the Philippians, rejoice. Let me say it again. Rejoice, rejoice in the Lord, he tells them from a prison cell. And he tells them, get this, he even says to them, I'm content. I'm here in my prison cell with my chain and my praetorian guard, and I'm content. He did not say, God, where are you? Where are you? Because I'm in prison. Where are you, God? I see what's going on around me. You must be gone. You must be dead. You must be angry with me. No, he didn't say that at all. He sang out in praise and told other people, rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because he knew that God was right there in the cell with him. He knew, he knew, he knew where God was. He God is right here with me. As a matter of fact, God put me here. God sent me to prison. And that's true, by the way. Read the book of Acts. Because Jesus said to Paul, you must testify You must go to Rome and you must testify. You must tell everybody about me. You must even testify before Caesar. So Paul knew that God wanted him in prison. Paul sees and sings because he knows God is with him in the darkness. And this brings us back to David. Because faith will lead you to cry out to God. And faith will lead you to ask him. To ask him boldly and honestly for a new perspective, for the right perspective. But faith goes further than that. You see it in David. Faith helps you make a decision. Now, faith is a gift. I don't want to miss, I want to be clear. Faith is a gift. You don't conjure it up by yourself. But when God gives you faith, you must express it. And our faith is often expressed in the decisions that we make. our choices. And so David makes a decision in verses five and six. He resolves by saying, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David says, I trust in your steadfast love that that phrase, steadfast love, that's a Hebrew word. And I never tell you what the original, what the original words are because I don't think it's very helpful. But this one's important. The word is chesed. And you see it all over the Old Testament. It's an important word in the Bible. You've often seen it translated. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you've seen this word translated loving kindness. Unfailing love, the NIV says. The King James Version says mercy, and I don't think that's sufficient. But I have trusted, David says, in your steadfast love. This is a powerful word. It's a covenantal word. And it denotes God's unfailing, unwavering commitment to love his children. And it's out of this steadfast love that David remembers... It's out of this steadfast love that God's goodness extends to people. It's out of this steadfast love that he offers his people salvation. Salvation doesn't come from your ability, from your rightness, from your morality, from your religiosity or intelligence or your good, kind acts. Salvation comes from the steadfast love of God, which he has promised to his people. He said this in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 54. The prophet quoted the words of the Lord. This is describing this steadfast love. The Lord said through Isaiah, I have sworn. You see this covenantal language? I have sworn that I will not be angry with you. He's talking to a group of people who have completely rejected him and are about to be sent, uh, judged and sent to Babylon for their sin. Okay? This is the context of Isaiah's words. And nonetheless... The Lord says, I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. So we see that David's David all of a sudden has confidence. He begins praying in 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 desperation and now he, now he's praying in confidence. He's singing now, like Paul in prison. And we see that this confidence that he now has, where is it coming from? Is it coming from changed circumstances? Right? Did he get the job? Did he get the girl? Was he healed from the ailment? Right? Did the conflict end? Did anything in the circumstance change? No, what changed? His perspective, his attitude changed. And this is where the the confidence comes from because God lifted up his eyes to see things as they really are. He prays like a man in grief. Have you prayed that way? You can. He prayed like a man in grief, but he prayed like a man who remembered that he was loved. One of the best little commentaries, and it's easy to read and it's easy to follow on the Psalms, was by a scholar named Derek Kittner. And, and I, I think I don't normally recommend commentaries because they're not always helpful to folks, um, uh, unless you want to dig really deep, and some of you do. But anybody could pick up Dave, Derek Kittner's commentary on Psalms and be blessed. Very straightforward language, and it's really helpful. Derek Kittner says there's a progression here in this prayer of David. He begins in a low valley, a dark valley, and he ends up on the top of a mountain. I want to talk about that a little bit. When you're out, I love being out in the wilderness. I love mountains. I love being out around them and in them and among them. Uh, but uh, there's something intimidating uh, uh, and limiting. And humbling about being in a dark valley, where you can't see what's going on five hundred meters away from you, and you just you look up and all you see are are mountains high above you, and you don't know what's going on on the other side of the mountain. And especially when the sun goes down over the over the range, well, well, now it's dark, and you really feel lost. And and this is where David begins his prayer. I'm lost. I have no perspective. I'm in the dark here. I don't know which way is up and I feel alone and I need your help. Where have you been? Right. But he doesn't stay there. Circumstances don't change. His perspective changes. And where does his perspective as he meditates on the steadfast love of the Lord for him? His perspective takes him up to a mountain peak. I remember being on the top of Pike's Peak. In Colorado, and and being able to see uh, for hundreds of miles, and you can see an entire mountain range from up there, and you can see other valleys, and you can see other mountain tops. It's different up there. You have a different perspective, don't you? You can you can you can see so far you can't even comprehend what's what's out there. You can see it, but but it's far away. And and this really is what happens. In David's prayer, he starts in a dark valley and he ends up on a mountaintop. Now, what's the mountaintop? You can't miss this today. The mountaintop is not a change in your circumstances. The mountaintop is not God answering your prayer. The mountaintop is not, I got the girl, I got the guy, I got the job, I got into the school I want to go. They all agree with me and I won the argument. I'm not in pain anymore. I don't have cancer anymore. I can walk straight. I can see straight. That's not the mountaintop. The mountaintop is the new perspective. The mountaintop is seeing clearly with eyes of faith, the love of God for you, his goodness in the past, because David talks about how God has been worked bountifully for him. One translation says he has been good to me. And so from this vantage point, you see other mountaintops and you see other valleys. You know, I've I've been in the thick of it before and I'm going to be in another dark valley soon enough. But I know that there's another mountain range after that and another mountaintop after that. And from the mountaintops vantage point, you have this this breathtaking panorama of God's past faithfulness to you. And because of your new identity in Jesus as a child of God, you know where he's leading you, regardless of how difficult things may be. The panorama is a view of God's steadfast love expressed in his past goodness to you and expressed in your future inheritance. Because what did I'm going to read it to you again. What did Paul say in Ephesians one that he, he was praying for the Ephesians that their hearts would be in the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So from the mountaintop, you have this panoramic view of God's past faithfulness to you and how his faithfulness is going to lead you into the future with hope. That's the mountaintop. That's why David is singing with confidence by the end of the song because of what's up there. And I added another picture here for you. This is me and my friend uh, Fred from Astoria, Queens. And... The reason I I mention this to you is to highlight the concept of Christian community and fellowship. The book table and your community groups and our discipleship relationships and our friendships in the Lord. Because we need to be on these mountaintops together to help one another interpret the promises of God. This is why we walk through life together, not alone as a faith community. Because... We help one another interpret and see clearly the proper vantage point. So we see that there is a big difference between how you feel and what you know. And this is what leads us to worship. You don't need an answer to worship God. Your circumstances don't need to change in order to worship God. Faith chooses to worship God. Despite the circumstances, faith says, no, I'm going to honor him and praise him and worship him and give thanks to him, regardless of how dark things are getting right now. This is what David does. What does he say? He says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has been good to me. That's why Christians sing. That's why we sing. I will. I will rejoice in the salvation of God. And I don't mean stoking yourself up emotionally to fake it for God and for other people. No, a legitimate, candid joy in the Lord. Because you see from the mountaintop his faithfulness to you. That doesn't change, although your circumstances may have. Now, where does this perspective do you don't do you want this perspective? I, I would recommend it to you. I need it myself. Where do you get this perspective from? Well, let's get there. Before we conclude. Back to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 49. The Lord said through Isaiah, sing for joy. Sing for joy, O heavens and exult. O earth break forth. O mountains into singing for the Lord has comforted his people. And will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said. Now these are the people in Jerusalem. Okay, Now Zion said the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Sound familiar? The Lord responds with this. Can a woman forget her nursing child. That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. This is how you get that perspective. You need to remember that the hands of Jesus Christ are scarred with indelible evidence of God's steadfast love for you. His palms were pierced. To prove to you once and for all that I have not forgotten you, says the Lord. The author of the book of Hebrews said to us, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. That means really, really intense prayers. Jesus offered up prayers and and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. You see, Christ's cross. Christ's death. That's where you've been. You stand up on that mountaintop on that ridgeline and you look down into those valleys and what you see in the valleys are Christ died and you died with him. If you're a Christian. You were on the cross with Jesus. That is God's faithfulness to you in the past. And the resurrection of Christ, the empty tomb, that's where you're going. When you're up there, that's what you see in the distance. That's why you can rejoice regardless of the situation. And when you head back down that ridge into the valley again and you're in the darkness again, you remember what you saw up there on the mountaintop. You know where you're headed because the tomb is empty. And that's where you're going. Is this enough, you know, because we're always want something more. Is this steadfast love of the Lord enough? Because we'll forget and we will think, no, it's not enough. I really need that job. And then it'll be enough. The steadfast love of the Lord is always enough. When I was uh, in a, this would have been not quite 10 years ago, nine, eight years ago. I was in a hospital room and, um. I was waiting for surgery. It was another operation to remove some cancer in my neck, and uh, it was stage three. So it was kind of a yeah, not great news. Um, and, and I remember being in this in this hospital bed, waiting to be wheeled in for surgery. Really not knowing what the new reality was going to be when I woke up. You know that you know that feeling to to be like, well, my whole life may change in seven hours. <laughs> I may wake up tomorrow and there will be a new reality. Uh, that, that I have to deal with, that my family and friends at the church has to deal with. And in, and in that moment, I read Second Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul's talking about this thorn in his flesh, this thing that was bothering him in his life. And um, it wasn't a sin. Uh, it, it seems to have been some kind of an ailment, some type of an obstacle. He called it a messenger from Satan. Um, and, and basically, he, he said, I asked, Jesus three times to take it away, and he said no. (laughs) One of my old mentors, Glenn Parkinson, said, God is not as worried about your problems as you are. And Jesus said to him three times, no. And actually, he recorded what Jesus precisely said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And that is the perspective that we need. And that is what is enough. And I read those words. And I had uh, the most most complete sense of the love of the Lord and the presence of the Lord. Than I think I've ever felt before. But that was in a dark valley. You know? And, And I really believe this, that. When we have that perspective, when we finally see things from the perspective of grace and from the unfailing love of God, then we look back and we go, I wouldn't want it any other way. I asked God for this. I asked him to avoid that. I didn't want this. I, I asked him for all these things. But now in hindsight, seeing the love of God for me is goodness in the past and seeing because of the resurrection of Christ where I'm going in the future. I wouldn't have it any other way. That's what faith does. So God's love runs deeper than his silence, much deeper. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Frederick Lehman, when you can't presently perceive God's love, remember his promise to love you or receive his love for the first time today. Look, if you're not a Christian and you have never trusted in your creator, the way you see people like David and Paul trusting in him, or if you are a Christian but you do not believe that God loves you, You come and talk to me. I'll be here. When the service is over, come and talk to me. And and I will, if it's okay with you, grab another person. And we will pray over you. That you would be changed by the love of God. Which is unfailing. Receive it maybe for the first time. I want to close by summing everything up. And I I thought of... I'm going to go a little longer. Because I don't know of any way of summarizing these helpful words written by David Powelson in a book that we have on our book table called Suffering and the Sovereignty of God. Several authors, he's one, he's a counselor. And he writes in such a way that I think will help us considering everything we've looked at in Psalm 13. And then I'll close and we'll we'll go on to communion. He says, so often the initial reaction to painful suffering is... Why me? Why this? Why now? Why? Well, you've now heard God speaking with you. The real God says all these wonderful things and does everything he says. He comes for you in the flesh, in Christ, into suffering, on your behalf. He does not offer advice and perspective from afar. He steps into your significant suffering. He will see you through and work with you the whole way. He will carry you even in extreme. This reality changes the questions that rise up from your heart. That inward turning, why me, quiets down, lifts its eyes, and begins to look around. You turn outward and new. Wonderful questions form. Why you? Why you? Why would you enter this world of evils? Why would you go through loss, weakness, hardship, sorrow, and death? Why would you do this for me of all people? But you did. You did this for the joy that was set before you. You did this for love. You did this showing the glory of God in the face of Christ. As that deeper question sinks home, you become joyously sane. The universe is no longer supremely about you, yet you are not irrelevant. God's story makes you just the right size. Everything counts, but the scale changes to something that makes much more sense. You face hard things, but you have already received something better, which can never be taken away. And that better something will continue to work out the whole journey long. The question generates a heartfelt response. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget any of his benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Thank you, my father. You are able to give true voice. To a thank you amid all that is truly wrong. Both the sins and the sufferings that have now come under loving kindness. Finally, you're prepared to pose and to mean almost unimaginable questions. Why not me? Why not this? Why not now? If in some way my faith might serve as a three-watt nightlight in a very dark world, why not me? If my suffering shows from the Savior of the world... What, uh, oh, I lost my place. If my suffering shows from, if, my, if my suffering shows forth the Savior of the world, why not me? If I have the privilege of filling up the sufferings of Christ, if he sanctifies to me my deepest distress... If I fear no evil, if he bears me in his arms, if my weakness demonstrates the power of God to save us from all that is wrong, if my honest struggle shows other strugglers how to land on their feet, if my life becomes a source of hope for others, why not me? Of course, you don't want to suffer, but you've become willing. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will, Jesus said to God. Like him, your loud cries and tears will in fact be heard by the one who saves from death. Like Jesus, you will learn obedience through what you suffer. Like him, you will sympathize with the weaknesses of others. Like him, you will deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Like him, you will display faith to a faithless world, hope to a hopeless world, love to a loveless world, life to a dying world. If all that God promises only comes true, why not me?
0: Let's pray.